Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world <coughs> excuse me, and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone, anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know what it felt like? Um, it felt like dad strength. You know when you were a kid and you're wrestling with your dad, you know, and he's just taking all the hits and he's toying with you, and then boom, he just takes you down? Jesus setting me straight that day. It, it felt a lot like that. Okay, okay, I know, I know. Hindsight is 2020, but at that time and at that moment, I just couldn't figure out what he was talking about, you know? I mean, why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to die? No, 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 not on my watch. This wasn't gonna happen, no sir. It just wasn't like he was, he was thinking straight, you know? I kept thinking maybe he's dehydrated, maybe he's hungry. The man never got enough to eat, if you ask me. So I take him aside and I start laying into him. And before I could even get very far, he stops me, looks me in the eyes, because he has those eyes. And you know what he said to me? Get behind me, Satan. Dad's strength. Those words, those eyes, that moment floored me. He floored me. <sighs> but I mean, seriously, get behind me, Satan. All right, I admit I have some flaws, you know, but Satan, I mean, that stung a bit, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I just didn't get it. I just didn't see the whole picture, which won't be the last time that'll happen, mind you. <laughs> you see, I, I wanted him to use that, that dad strength on the world, you know? I mean, my desires, my plans. And your boy, Peter's plans, they don't always work out so good, i.e. ear slicing, etc. But he knew, he knew all along, <laughs> he would give us just enough rope for allow us to figure things out for ourselves. And then he just, 
He had that dad strength, you know? He pulls back in. Right at that moment, we needed saving from ourselves. That was his plan all along. Saving us from ourselves. Saving me from myself. I was thinking about this week as a parent, the, the fiercest arguments that we have with our kids are usually not the result of a misunderstanding. No, they're usually... The worst arguments are when our kids know exactly what we're saying and they just don't want to do it. And that's the situation that we have in our scripture reading today. Today is the second week in our Lenten series we're calling Back to the Basics, where we're focusing on what we consider the, the fundamental basics of our faith by following the footsteps of Jesus to the cross and beyond to Easter. And what I suggested the first week was that, that while there are many complexities to life and faith, lots of questions the things that we often get caught up in are not usually the things we under, don't understand, but they're the things that we do understand and we just don't want to do. You know, it's, it's like a diet. It's really not that complicated to understand what's good for you and what isn't. That if I'm hungry, I should eat an apple and not a piece of cake. And yet, knowing that basic understanding and making that decision are two very different things. Well, on a much bigger scale, the same can be said about the life of Jesus and the subsequently invitation of his to follow him into what he is about to do. And so that brings us to the reading that we read just a minute ago. It's well past what we read last week. Last week was the beginning of Lent, and we learned the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist in the Jordan River, but we're well past that now. We're well past the 40 days where God tempted, or where Satan tempted him. God does not tempt us, but where Satan tempted him in the wilderness, and God used that time as a preparation. We're well past Jesus calling the 12 disciples, in addition to many others that are now following him as sort of an entourage. At this point, Jesus has become quite popular. And if you were reading through the Gospel of Mark, you would see that we just skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Things like the miracles that he's performing. He healed the blind. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of, of bread and some fish. And he did it twice. And so it's in the midst of all of those things that Mark decides to zero in after all of that on what might look like a fairly insignificant moment as they are traveling between places, skirting the more populous areas of the region. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 again says this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now I notice here as I look at this passage that that what's true for Jesus is often true for us. The most meaningful conversations can't be forced. 
Like, again, I think about as a parent, if I sit down with my kids and say, okay, we're going to have a really serious conversation right now about whatever it is, that usually does not lead to a serious conversation. They might, they might say something or they might sit there and oblige, but usually the deep conversations happen on the road to life. It's when I'm putting them to bed or it's when we're driving to school. And unlike me, who gets distracted and often can miss those opportunities, Jesus knows that he has an opportunity at hand. And so he prompts the disciples with a question. It says, on the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. What we see here is they're just shooting the breeze. There's, there's nothing confrontational or, or overly unique about their answers. Jesus has become popular and people are talking about it. They're talking about who he might be. And, and it's really not that significant what we're reading. And you can see that because Mark doesn't tell you who said what. He summarizes a big part of the conversation in just one sentence. Because when you're just talking about other people, the stakes are low. But see, Jesus wants to raise the bar, and so he asks another question. He says, but what about you, verse 29? Who do you say I am? Now they don't answer, just one of them does. His name's Peter, one of the disciples. He answers, you are the Messiah. Now Peter's the one we just met in the video. And if you know anything about Peter, you know he's kind of an open book. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes it's not. He speaks his mind. And I want to give him credit here because he's about to put his foot in his mouth. And before we get to that part, I just want to point out that what he says here is very true. But in both cases, what he's about to say and what he's already said, he's processing out loud what he thinks about Jesus. And what he thinks right now about Jesus is not only true, but it's incredibly significant. You can see that in Jesus' response. Verse 30, Jesus warned them, don't tell anyone about me. Peter is absolutely right. Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he does not want them out announcing that to the world yet. Why? Because if they do, he will die. They will kill him. And he doesn't want them to get too loud about this, because if he dies too soon, he will not finish accomplishing what he has come to earth to do. Now, back at that time, the Roman Empire was in charge of this entire region. It was a massive region with lots of different groups of people within it. And the Roman Empire allowed those groups of people to live their own lives as long as they did not threaten Rome, as long as they paid their taxes and bowed to Caesar. And so anytime someone rose up and became too popular, they became suspicious and that region might hand them over to the Romans to have them killed to keep the peace. See, this is what's going to actually happen on the cross with Jesus, but it's not time yet. And the reason isn't because Jesus isn't willing. And it's not because he has to psych himself up for the sacrifice, but it's because he's got some work to do yet. Specifically, he's got to show them not just that he's the Messiah, but he wants to teach them what that looks like. If you look, I don't have it on the, on the screen, but in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, it says that Jesus didn't want anybody to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He's not going to leave this earth until he's taught his disciples everything they need to know. And so here Peter understands who Jesus is. That's great. He's the Messiah. But he still has more to learn. And that's the next part of the passage. Verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Jesus spoke plainly, basic. This verse is the verse that inspired the title for this whole sermon series, Back to the Basics. This verse right here, there's nothing left to the imagination. Jesus explains to them, he said, guys, this is what's going to happen. Here's the rest of the story. I'm going to suffer. The entire religious institution is going to reject me. They're going to have me killed on a Roman cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. That's what he said. Very basic. And Peter isn't having anything of it. Look at verse uh, 32 again. It says that Jesus spoke plainly about this. Peter clearly understood what he was saying and took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you might read that and you might say, Why? I mean, didn't Jesus just say that in the end he's going to rise from the grave? Like, you've been to an Easter service. This is good news. Why is Peter rejecting him? Why is Peter rebuking him? It's all going to be okay in the end, right? But then I think to myself, when was the last time that excuse worked for you? When was the last time that answer worked for you? Just think about the last challenge that you faced, or, or maybe the challenge that you're smack in the middle of right now. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship that's divided. Maybe, maybe you lost your job. Maybe you're really sick. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're just angry because the world is still not back to normal and you're sick of it. Maybe you've lost someone recently. Whatever it is, how does that same answer work for you? It's okay, you know, life is hard and you're going to be through all this suffering, but in the end you get to go home and be with Jesus and it's all good. How does that work? <laughs> it's not that simple, is it? Now in Philippians, I do want to say this. If you've read Philippians, the Apostle Paul, he writes in, in that letter, he says that it would be better for me to die and go and be with Jesus than it is for me to be here. I got work to do here, but it would be better for me to go. Okay, Paul does actually say that. But see, Paul... You know anything about Paul? He had something Peter didn't have, at least at this point. He lived on the other side of the resurrection. He lived on the other side. At, at that point, as Paul was writing these words, he had already witnessed the reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again and actually appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Peter doesn't have that luxury at the part of the story that we're reading right now. He has not yet experienced that. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking for us, who lived 2,000 years after the resurrection, as people that are anxiously waiting for Jesus to come back, we can probably relate to Peter a little better than we can to Paul. We can probably relate to Peter just a little bit better than we can to Paul. See, see, Peter has no problem identifying Jesus as Messiah, right? Jesus will save him. That's great. And that's wonderful. And he's actually, unlike the other disciples, bold enough to actually say it out loud. And then he's also bold enough to say that he does not like the road that Jesus is going to allow him to live and to go on in order to get to that salvation. Paul, or Peter does not like it. He does not like the suffering part. He does not like the rejection part. He does not like the death part. He does not like all of those things happening before resurrection. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to Peter because I don't like any of those things either. I don't like suffering. I don't like death. I don't like any of those things. And I mentioned last week that a year ago during the season of Lent, we read through the Gospel of Mark during 
this same season. And we actually, we read some of the same passages that we're reading this year, including the passage we're reading today. And so, so I went back and I looked at my sermon from a year ago because I just want to make sure I didn't preach the same thing, you know. And, and I was looking at it and it was like, it was almost exactly a year ago. It was a year ago in, in the season of Lent and it was two weeks into the initial pandemic lockdown. That's when we read these verses together. We were, we're all, in case you don't remember, we were all newly huddled in our homes. We're utterly confused about what was happening in our world. We were bleaching our mail. We were rationing our toilet paper. Remember that? And my sermon on this same passage that week was, was pretty simple. It was that that this is not the end of the story, that, that Jesus will rise and so will we, that he is with us and that while everything is not okay in the world right now and it may even get worse, it will be better in the end because Jesus saves and so he will save us. And all of that is still true today. As a matter of fact, I probably could have given you the same sermon I gave a year ago. It's a good sermon if I do say so myself. I got it out of this book. Now, the toilet paper illustration may not have worked so well this year as it did a year ago. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I think we've actually transitioned in a year. We've actually transitioned to the second part of this passage. A year ago, we were all saying Jesus is Messiah. We were all like Peter. We were bold in our faith, and we were clinging to our faith. And this was awesome. Churches were literally locking up Facebook because so many people were looking for this story online each and every week. It was awesome. But then the last year happened to us. And it's a lot different today. And what we learned is what it looks like to live out the faith that we were clinging desperately to a year ago. We've had to apply it for the last 12 months. And we've learned that it's not easy. And people still died that that we've been asked to make sacrifices that, that we never intended to make, whether it was to, to put a piece of cloth on our face everywhere we go or, or to lose our jobs to be separated from our loved ones, and I'm not saying just from a virus, but then it morphed into separation over what we believe or what we don't believe about this virus. And if that wasn't enough, those tensions ended up highlighting all these other tensions that that have always been there, things like racism and absolute hatred for people that are different from us, total political polarization. And here's the truth. If, If I was a prophet last year, And I preached the same sermon on this passage. And I said, Jesus is the Messiah. You all would have said amen. You would have typed it because nobody was here yet. (laughs) But you would have done that. And then if I said, but here's the thing, the Lord has spoken to me. I'm a prophet. I'm not a prophet. But let's say I was a year ago. And I said, the Lord has spoken to me. And he has revealed to me what's going to happen in the next year. He's revealed to me that that there's going to be division conspiracy theories that we're going to be asked to do things we don't want to do. If I described what was about to take place over the next year, almost every single one of us would have said, no way, I'm not going there. I don't want to be there. That's not a place that I would willingly follow anyone, even Jesus. I mean, just be honest. Haven't you gone to places this past year that you never willingly would have gone on your own? Isn't that true for each and every one of us? If it is, then then it means we need to relate to Peter in both ways. We need to relate to Peter 
And yes, that Jesus is our Messiah. Yes, that's good. Be bold. And we need to admit that we don't always want to go where he's leading us to go. Can we agree? And if that's true, then how does Jesus respond to us? Well, he does the same thing he does to Peter. Mark 8, 33, it says, it says, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely of human concerns. Now, that sounds harsh. But as I read that passage this week, what I heard was a loving father who is grabbing his children before they run into danger. A loving dad who sees a child who's about to run wayward and he grabs hold of him and holds him back. See, when I read these words a year ago, not having a clue what the next year would look like, this is what I thought. The, the, the human concerns that Jesus is warning about, it's almost verbatim from the sermon a year ago. The human concerns Jesus is warning us about are the things that we focus on that we're going to lose. Those are the human concerns. The concerns of God focus us on what we will find, and focusing on what will be found is the only way to find hope in the midst of pain. But I want to point out that it doesn't ignore what will be lost. To the contrary, verse 34, Jesus then called the crowd along to him, along with his disciples, and he said this. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus brings us face to face with what we will lose following him. But there's a reason why he does it. Verse 35, he says, for, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And this is instinctive to us. We see this and we honor this when we see examples of it. Like just this past Friday, like Jesus says, whoever will, will save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We honor this without even knowing it. This, this past Friday, half of Elkhorn lost power. Maybe some of you did. And, and we lost it for about two hours. And my wife, Alyssa, were sitting there with our older boys who were still awake that night. And, and they're freaking out. No, no, what's going to happen? And it was all good. You know, it wasn't like below zero. We were very thankful, had everything we needed. And my wife told our boys, she said, you know, our friend Holly, who's a missionary in Kenya, where she lives, this happens all the time. Like, they lose power for days. They've got to just be prepared for this because at any given time, their power is unreliable, and they make that sacrifice to share the gospel. See, people who do those things, those are heroes of the faith. People who lose themselves in order that someone else might gain something more. Verse 36, what good is it for somebody to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anybody give in exchange for their soul? See, for everything that we have ever lost and for everything that we will ever lose, which is everything on earth, let me remind you, you and I will eventually lose our health. If it's not by illness, it'll be by, by old age. You will lose your money because you can't take it to heaven with you. You will lose your house. You will lose your favorite car. You will lose your job. Eventually, you will lose everything in this life when you cross over the finish line that God has for you here because this part is limited. It is finite, which sounds hopeless because it is. Unless, of course, 
by beginning now to loosen our grip on the things we're going to lose anyway, maybe God might put in their place something better that will last forever. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. And do you know what that something is that God replaces the things that are going to fall away with? Do you know what that thing is that God puts in your hand when you loosen your grip on the world? It's going to sound really cheesy. It's love. That's what he puts in your hand. It's love. And it sounds cheesy, but, but, but this isn't my idea. This is what Jesus says, right? You want to summarize the, the law and the prophets? He says, love God and love others. He says, everything hinges on those two things. The reason why is because those are the only two things that you can do on earth that you will also be doing forever and ever and ever in heaven. Eternity looks like loving God and loving others for the rest of time. And you know this because when you're on the brink of death... And you're looking forward. What do people look forward to? They're not really concerned about the mansion imagery that Jesus gave and say, well, I hope I have a bigger house when I get there, right? I hope my car is more reliable here or there than it was here. Nobody's thinking about that. What are they thinking about? They're saying, I want to see my loved ones. They're saying, I want to see Jesus. And friends, what Jesus was inviting Peter into and what he's inviting all of us into is that you don't have to wait to experience this. You don't have to wait. This last year was a boot camp in preparation for that day. That's actually our entire lives. This is God's purpose. It's preparation for heaven. There's a theological word for it. We call it sanctification. But I'm just going to call it boot camp. Because boot camp is hard. But just like boot camp, it's not about boot camp. It's about where we're being prepared to go. And until we get there, we're not ready yet. God still has you on this side of heaven. You're not ready yet. And that means we're like Peter. But friends, there's hope. The hope is that you and I might not be ready, but we are closer We are closer today than we were a year ago when we read these same words. And the hope is that if you keep your eyes on Jesus and the things of God, you will be closer tomorrow than you are today. Because as painful as boot camp is, that's all it is. It's boot camp. It is not the destination. Last year, I I, I quoted Psalm 30, verse 5, which says this. It says, while the weeping may stay for the night, rejoicing comes in the morning. And I don't know about you, but when I look back at this last year, I will say this, that how well I have wept in the night says more about my faith in God than how well I rejoice in the morning. How well I have wept in the night says more about my faith than how well I rejoice in the morning. And I want you just to notice something here. It doesn't say that we don't weep. That's life. The question is, how do you weep? Do you weep as a child of God, trusting that he is with you? That's what Jesus did. Remember last week, the father said in his baptism, he said, you are my son, I love you, I'm proud of you. That didn't protect Jesus from pain, but it did carry him through it. 
And faith in Jesus has the power to do the same thing for you and me as well. This is why the Apostle Paul says to fellow believers who are mourning the death of their brothers and sisters, he says in 1 Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's not that we don't grieve, it's that we grieve different. We grieve with hope. Over and over and over again, we are pointed back to the fact that Jesus is our Messiah in suffering, not apart from suffering. And I think I've given that same sermon every single Sunday for the past year. Because it's what I read on every single page as I try faithfully in in a broken way to apply it to my own life. It's true. Our God is a suffering Savior because God can do what only God can do in the midst of our suffering. He can take things that are bad and use them for good. And that brings us into the invitation of what we're going to be focusing on as a church this next week and our prayer and practice handout for Lent. Last Sunday, I introduced that there's this weekly guide that we're following together. And each week, there's a suggested prayer and a practice that Christians have been doing for generations. They are rooted in Scripture, and it it helps us to to grow closer to God during this season that's leading us to Easter. And so last week, our our, our challenge was to fast. And I hope that that many of you did that. And and just because it was last week, it doesn't mean you can't do it this week. You you do it every week of Lent. Many Christians do that. But this week, we're going to focus on a different tradition, and it's a focus on lament, and silence. And if you don't know what lament is, it's, it's a form of prayer specifically for those things in our life that are painful. It's the place that we can come before God when we're angry, when we're lost, when we have questions. And I really like the author of our material and how he defines lament, so I just want to read it to you here. He says, lament is not about getting things off your chest. That's not what it is. It's about casting your anxieties upon God and trusting him with them. Mere complaining indicates a lack of intimacy with God. Because lament is a form of prayer, lament transforms our cries and complaints into worship. I really like this next line. Anyone can complain and practically everyone does. Amen? Christians can lament because we have access to the creator of the world and the author of our stories. Christians talk to God about their condition and ask him to change things because they have a relationship with him. To lament is to be utterly honest before God when our faith tells us that we can trust. Biblical lament affirms that our suffering is real, spiritually significant, but it is not Ever hopeless. And so I want to challenge you this week to do this. And this guide, it's very simple. We've got some handouts you can grab on your way out if you didn't get one yet. If you're on our email list, um, even if you're new and filled out the, the Connect card, you'll get it this afternoon. And the guide will give you some very basic instructions, some scripture that you can read, some questions that you can ask. And then it's going to encourage you into the practice of silence. And just like we all set apart a day last week to fast, this week the challenge for all of us is to set apart one hour this week to be silent and alone with God. And I think it would be the perfect time to go through this process of lament. Because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things 
that I still need to process and bring before the Lord about what's happened over this last year and what's happened in many other places in my life. And so I am so grateful that God gives us a place to do that. And what I want to challenge you to do right now is I want to challenge you to think about what hour this week are you going to set apart that time to do it? Because I know almost everybody's going to agree and say, yeah, of course, that'd be a good thing for me to pray for one hour this week, and then we will leave, and it'll be nothing more than a good intention. And so let's, let's actually think through our week this week, and let's do that while we pray and ask God to reveal the, the perfect time and place for us to do this. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that you are our suffering Savior, that you are with us always that you have been with us and, and that we can read the stories of, of your disciples who have gone before us, men like Peter, and we can say, I'm there too. You are our Messiah. And yet when we look ahead at the things that we have to do and the ways that we have to suffer, God, we don't want to go. And so help us to keep our eyes focused not on the things of this world, but on the things that we find in you. Help us to come before you this week. Lord God, I pray tangibly that you would give each and every one of us one hour in our mind right now. What day of the week is it going to be? Is it going to be Tuesday at 8 a.m.? Is it going to be Friday at 6 p.m.? What day and time and place is it going to be for us to create holy space to listen to you? Lord, lead us to that moment in our minds right now and help us to pray. We are accountable to you. And say, God, I will meet you there. I will meet you in that place. And I will be honest with you. I will tell you exactly what I'm thinking, even if I think I'm not supposed to be thinking it, because you know my thoughts. You know my ways. You know my heart. You know the things that we're angry about. You know the things that we are still lamenting over losing. You know the places that we have not trusted you. And we could bring all of those things before you, God, because we do not bring those things before you without hope. Because we know that you're our Savior. And we can be bold in knowing that the end of the story is good, even if the pain to get there is difficult. And the truth is, that pain is difficult for each and every one of us, whether, whether we believe in you or not. Life is hard. So give us the faith and the strength to, to reach out to you and to, to acknowledge the reality that you are always with us as you always have been and always will be. That you might even redeem our suffering as your own death, Jesus, was redeemed on the cross when three days later you rose from the grave. And as Paul boldly proclaims, if that's true, and if you would give your own son, Father, on our behalf because you love us, then are you not willing to give us all things? And so, God, we come before you now with that hope. And as we open our eyes, we are reminded that, that we don't have to get to the, the end of this 
this season of Lent to experience this hope because this story has already happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived and died and rose again. It's true. And it's true for you and it's true for me right now. He is with us. And he promises to be with us in the interim. He says that he will be with us through his presence, through the Holy Spirit, until he comes back to take us to where he is going, that we might be there to love him and to love one another for the rest of time. So we prepare for heaven by coming to this feast table that represents heaven itself, this, this meal that Jesus gives us. And if you're at home, I want to encourage you to take out whatever elements you have. If you're here, take out the ones you received when you came. And let us remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, Jesus took the cup of blessing, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink and said, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For as often as we eat this bread and as often as we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And if you believe these promises to be true, And if you want to let go of the things of this world to grab hold of the things of heaven, we tangibly remind ourselves of that prayer each and every Sunday when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and we do it with open hands. It's a sign of surrender and I want to encourage you to do it with me right now as we open up our hands and we pray the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. Let's pray it together out loud. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Take and eat the body of Christ broken for you. Take and drink the blood of Christ shed for you. body and the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and keep you in his grace. And as we stand to sing one final song of praise, might we receive that grace through his presence as he blesses us as we